SBC Media. Hello and welcome to Cinema Reels. We are the gambling movie podcast where we talk about which movies are the film equivalent of a card shark and which movies are the cinematic equivalent of dead money. I am Jessica Wellman, the editor of SBC Americas, and I'm joined by SBC Media's commercial director, John Cook, and multimedia editor, James Ross. But guys, it's a movie podcast, so I think people want to know more not what you do at SBC, but what is it that you love about movies? John, you can go first. How oh, very kind of you. What is it I love about movies? Uh, I suppose the thing I love about movies is escapism. Life can sometimes get boring, right? So you can just delve into someone else's little world. Uh, and that is probably the number one thing that excites me. How long have I been interested in movies? Since my parents banned me from watching anything until I was about 12, so I think it was the 1988 Olympics that we finally got to watch television and then I got to go to see a film in the cinema, which was The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is wow. genuinely not The Greatest Story Ever Told. Are Bible movies generally your jam? Absolutely not. <laughs> what kind of movies, like what's, what kind of movies are your jam? Yeah, as a big hulking rugby player. No, I'm not really, but um, I quite like a chick flick. Hey, nothing wrong with that. I know, but from, yeah, most people would probably expect me to say die hard, but no, I quite like a chick flick. All right, James, how about you? What what movies do you tend to love most and how did you come to love them? Um, So I'm kind of going to echo a bit of what John said there. The escapism from films is the main reason why I love it. Also, the storytelling aspect of films is just, I love going getting like diving into a story and being guided through this complex narrative to a nice fulfillment ending um and kind of one of my favorite films well my favorite film and film series is star wars um you'll come to know that as this podcast goes on probably because i'll reference it quite a lot um and i think my first ever memory of seeing a film and you also come to know that i also like cartoons is I was a little kid and it was dinosaurs. <gasps> um, and that was the first film that I saw in the cinema. Dinosaurs is in Not the Mama, Not the Mama. The one with Aladar and No, he's um, talking about the really somber Disney movie. Oh, yeah. it's actually yeah. kind of a one. weird social Darwinism commentary mm -hmm. <laughs> that we need yeah. to just leave the weaker dinosaurs behind to die. <laughs> <laughs> I much yeah. prefer not the mama dinosaur sitcom as well. Yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of my, my little one-on-one -on, -one on films. Unlike John, I was parked in front of a TV from birth. Uh, I was always just the TVs were on in our house while we did things, while we did chores, while we ate dinner. There was just always the TV on. And I have been kind of fanatical in just I want to watch everything. I will get into phases where I'll say, oh, my God, I love that old movie star Glenn Ford and I will just go and find every Glenn Ford movie that I can. Tried to make a career out of it, went to film school twice, ended up here. Uh, but now we have this pod where to give you guys the idea, 
The gist of Cinema Reels is to talk about gambling movies. We're going to talk about the movies in general, but we're also going to talk about the gambling in the movie. What they get right, what they get wrong. Is this a gambler you would want to back with your own money? And we're going to kick this little experiment of ours off with, I would say, you know, a big, big name in the pantheon of gambling movies, and that is Molly's Game. Uh, for those of you who came to SBC Barcelona last year, you might remember that Molly Bloom did an awesome keynote there talking about her experiences. That keynote kind of comes to play out in the film Molly's Game. Molly's Game is based on the true story of Molly Bloom, who ran afoul of the law after running underground games in both Los Angeles and New York. The tabloids took hold of the story because of the A-listers involved in her games, but the film takes a closer look at Bloom the person and her motivation for not naming names and the story of how she came to be known as the Poker Princess. Now, guys, first impressions, overall thoughts about Molly's game, The Middle Fate. Don't talk over each other, guys. That's not going to make a good podcast. <laughs> we both breathed in. Go on, James. Okay. So, I'll be honest, when I was watching the film, it felt like I was actually just listening to an audiobook because I'm pretty sure at least a third of this film is voiceover from Molly Bloom's character by Jessica Chastain. And I could actually shut my eyes, listen to the film, and I'll still get the net I'll still get everything that was going on. So it was kind of hard to delve into it. I know um Aaron Sorkins he did suits and he's really good with his kind of script and quick I'm sorry, cycle suits? You think Aaron Sorkin did Suits? He did, didn't he? No. He was. Just, he did the screenplay for Suits. Ah. I'm going to have to Google that one. You mean the the show with Patrick yeah. J. At... No. Yeah. I'll bet you a dollar that he did not write the, the pilot of Suits. I'm pretty sure he did. I'll bet you a pound even. I'll give you the conversion rate. John, you tell us what you thought of Molly's game while I go figure out where this confusion came from. I think this is a beautiful film. Genuinely, I love every single minute of it. I think the casting is spectacular. I think the acting is really just spot on. The The delivery of the lines is, is rapid. It's natural. It's just... It's just glorious. I really like it, and I know it is. I know it's a true story. So there's some real um, heartache and desperation throughout the whole film in terms of uh, looking at someone's life from your sofa. Um, but I just think the way in which it's been portrayed is just glorious. And I do get what James is saying about the the voiceover and the sort of ability for it to potentially be an audio book. But I think you kind of needed that because it came from, it came from a book and like the, the, the narration adds to it and it gives some color to color to what's going on there. Um, and I think, look, I know we you guys are just having a little bit of a, a debate about Aaron Sorkin, but oh, I've lost that debate. Don't worry. Oh, you've, you for sure lost my friend. Yeah. Well, I got half it right. Oh, interrupting me while I'm just going to make a really valid point. Um, as his directorial debut in a film, uh, I think this is so well done. It is beautiful. I'm going to 
echo a lot of what you said, John. I normally am someone who I get real uppity if there's too much voiceover in a film. But I will make an exception for Aaron Sorkin because I am just a super fan of Aaron Sorkin dialogue and just the way that he plays with language and the rat-a-tat-tat rapid fire of the way his characters talk. Even though it's like not necessarily how real people talk, like you want to believe it's how real people could talk. And it's almost Mm. like a throwback to the 30s in that way to me. Uh, I would also say, too, it is his directorial debut. I would say that The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is what he followed up with, he is more willing to kind of lean into more visual cinematic conventions. There's a lot more kind of visual storytelling. And you can tell that he is a screenwriter directing a movie. To James, your point, that you probably could close your eyes for large swaths of this and not necessarily need to see what's going on. That being said, I I really like this movie, especially because this book, if you've read it, it doesn't lean to cinema super easy, right? Because the book's just kind of a tell-all. Um, it's not like something with this through line and a narrative. Yeah, see, I'll confirm now is Aaron Kosh for Suits, not Sarkin. Yeah, no, I mean, That's I'm it. lucky. I, um, you're lucky that I was not. I would be like, I bet my house that Aaron Sorkin <laughs> did not write this pilot. Um, I <laughs> was 100 convinced. I'll give you a pound. Um, but what I'll say is, I did. I'll echo yours. I, I did like the dialogue um, for the short snippets that was in there. It was kind of like back and forth, rat attacks to kind of dialogue. It was, it was witty and kind of impactful when it did happen i just thought there was too many periods in between when again i was just listening to molly's blame and yeah fair enough it's from a book so you can kind of you, you know an autobiography you'd say so you can you can kind of understand where it's coming from i thought the start of the film was okay i had two issues at the start of this film it was too fast-paced for me the skiing part you're saying um the skiing part up until she met um what's he called player x before Player X, one who called it Bad Bagels, whatever it was. Dean? Dean. The boss. Dean, that was it, Dean. Dean yeah. yeah, until they met Dean, it was way too fast-paced. And also, actually, that start of the film, to show her Olympic background and kind of the trouble that she went into her injury, I'm like, you're trying to create this nice vibe and feel for a person who actually, and I don't care what the film says, she knew what she was doing was illegal, and she, she built a lot of money on it. So it's trying to sympathize. You're trying to create sympathy for someone by creating that little homage at the first five minutes. I I kind of think that backstory is important to understand the the relationship that she had with her family and and frankly the destructive nature that her father had in her personality, in terms of the way in which he he basically bullied her to be driven. It wasn't a you can't see within that family that they're and apologies if I'm talking out of turn to Molly if she is listening to it because she knows SBC um, but it seems to me that it kind of he he drove all of his kids to be overachievers by um, pushing his and this is how the film portrays it right pushing his inadequacies maybe onto them that's explained through flashbacks throughout the film, not like the first, just the first five No, minutes. but I think it's important to set that up. I think that's important to set it <laughs> a up. Brief, a brief millisecond of but it was the first brief. five minutes. It was brief. 
it was kind of like she gets to the bottom of the gets to the bottom of the slope and just told she's basically crap and then she goes and does it again even though she's unwell and then i think it's important to also understand in terms of the the story and the narrative and the context of where she went from one less she was high performing in skiing but not not world's number one like her brother there was a competitive nature between her siblings that drove her to be ultra successful in the games that she the games that she ran and she developed and you can see the competitive nature where she basically steals the game off of somebody else i think i think that that is a precursor to everything i'm i have a feeling we're going to argue a lot during this no i actually i I agree with the point that you're saying but for me i felt that first five to ten minutes where it's just it just it was trying to create this sympathetic tool to kind of propel against the stuff that she actually did which was and you saw it throughout the film like the stuff that she did was illegal she was always questioning yes but is this legal and the lawyer was like yes but it really wasn't i, I just felt like it's it might have skewed the narrative from a biased point of view because it was obviously from molly's autobiography um point of point of order point of clarity uh the vast majority of what happens in this movie is indeed 100% legal. Anything okay. that took place in Los Angeles was absolutely legal. And up until she raked a pot in New York, which was like very late in this, all, like that is the only piece of this that was illegal. I mean, or, or well, she, I guess she did drugs recreationally and I suppose that's illegal too. But like, uh, to be clear, that California game was a million percent on the up and up. So why did the lawyer portray it as a way that mm, it's not legal, but it kind of is legal and didn't give an actual definitive answer? Um, I think because uh, you could... So, all right, quick aside. Private games in terms of poker in the United States, you're always kind of at the behest of local law enforcement. Um, those are the groups of people that, that will raid these games and do things. Typically, these games don't get raided and don't get touched unless something else criminal is happening in, you know, like there's guns, there's drugs, whatever. And then perhaps they come in and say, um, I mean, if she can prove she didn't take a rake. You could argue, I guess, legally that because she's getting tipped that she's potentially, you know, you could interpret it as a rake. But like, yeah, no, Um at the legal level, I, I play in games like this. If you go and play at someone's house and they don't charge you to play, that's perfectly legal. Talk to me about the rake. I, I, look, I just didn't understand that and I haven't had time to look at it. Rake is when the house takes a percentage of the pot as basically a fee for putting on the game. So in that big scene where there's like three million in the pot, right? And that's the scene where she finally starts breaking the law. She has the dealer pull out a couple of chips. Yeah, 2%, right? Pulling out that 2% is what is called the rake, and that is illegal. Okay. I also want to go back to, you know, while we're talking about legal things, I highly doubt Molly Bloom is here listening, but if she is... To me, the whole Kevin Costner father storyline felt very much like a, a cinematic construction that oh, okay. was just put into the film to give it some emotional heft. Uh, I don't, having read Molly's Game, I don't recall that being a part of the story. She she was in a family of athletes. They were highly competitive, but I don't 
recall reading this book and having it be like Molly's game, a study in daddy issues. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think that this was something they kind of put into the movie to make it a little more deep. Yeah, I think I think maybe you're right there because if you look at other reviews that have been put out there online, a lot of people say, oh, this is perfect timing in terms of looking at the gender discussion and how people are treated and so on. So, yeah, maybe it's just put in there from a Hollywood perspective to add some heft. And again, that's what I think I have to give props to the movie for is that they are taking, like, a very bare bones story of a thing. There were these poker games that people played in that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and Ben Affleck and Tobey Maguire all played in and they created what I found was like a really compelling narrative about somebody, you know, it was almost like Frank Capra-esque that she's a woman who just stands by her principles. Mm. And what are the consequences of standing by your principles when it comes to, you know, you suffering the consequences of something compared to someone else. Mm. So let's have a chat in terms of the film and how each character is portrayed. I kind of thought that Jessica Chastain as Molly was mesmerizing. So I, I, I love her as an actress anyway, but I just thought her delivery was spectacular. She had the, at the very early start of the, the film, she kind of was bullied into running the first game, right, for her arsehole boss who didn't like a certain type of bagels. And there was the vulnerability there. And then she, you could see the character learning. You could see the character sort of working out how to play the, the room and building a real strength to them, which I thought was just really, really so well played. She so does a lot of work, too, that is just shots of her watching. Yeah, yeah. And they're very captivating, and they are pushing forward this narrative, even though she's not saying anything. Mm. It's funny to me to look at, like, the eyes of Tammy Faye, where she plays this, like, very soft, sweet person and see that she can also, you know, in movies like this and uh, Zero Dark Thirty, kind of turn on a dime and be incredibly kind of hard as a character and chiseled as a character. James, what do you think? I'll agree. Uh, Jessica Chastain, and I know I've already voiced some concerns I have with the film, but I generally thought her her display throughout the whole film kind of is what kept me glued to the screen a bit. Um, sh- sh- strong, strong presence on the screen. Uh, I was a big fan of her. Besides Chastain, any favorite performances from anybody? Yeah. Um, Go uh, on, James. Idris Elba. Um, I thought he was really good. Um, you kind of I thought his kind of chemistry with uh, Jessica Chastain was really good um, I kind of liked his little backstory and throughout the film he started to kind of learn off her a little bit from her own issues with her father to what he's going with through uh, with his daughter I thought that was really nice yeah I, I struggle with Idris Elba if I'm entirely honest because I was a huge fan of Luther and whenever I watch Idris Elba, I just see him as the Luther character. But this film is the first film where I've seen something really different from him. And I thought it was really he was really well directed. I think the way he delivered lines was spectacular. I thought it was just um perfect. The one that Sorry, the one that, that little pause in the courtroom. He, he said nothing and the camera was just slowly zooming onto him and you could see just kind of like 
the thought process and emotion that he was going through at the time. I thought that was great acting. I know it was like a little snippet of five seconds, but I thought it was brilliant. Sorry, go on, John. The one that really gets me, because um, having done some acting, I know how difficult this is to do, but Chris O'Dowell, who is basically drunk for every single scene he's in, he plays a perfect drunk. That's how a drunk person is. Playing drunk is so hard. People can do it bad very quickly. He does it so well. And it's like the... It's like the... um, complete I suppose nonsensical nonsensical script that just he delivers so well as well I don't know if that was ad-libbed in terms of what he was given a load of lines and then just basically he cut bits out and and made it look a little bit more um erratic but I just thought he was fantastic doing that Generally, what I've heard with Sorkin films is that they are very bound to the dialogue. So I think like, oh, okay. you know, when he asks, like says he thinks like that Greek god played in his game and that sort of thing, I do think. Um, granted, Sorkin was behind the camera for this one. He might be a little more willing, but usually I think they are very uh, married to Sorkin scripts. Well, then that's amazing script writing and even better acting. Uh, I'm going to throw out... I loved Kevin Costner in this movie because I think, you know, as much as I love most of the writing in this movie, like that daddy stuff very easily could have gone to a very like treacly movie of the week, cheesy kind of place. And the very like gruff, unsentimental father that Kevin Costner brings to the table, that scene in the park, always yeah. remains one of my favorite scenes mm. in the entire movie. I think keeps the one spot where this screenplay could have kind of gone off the rails from going off the rails. Mm. Yeah. He's strong. He's really strong. And I look, I just think the whole cast as a whole, like as a collective, you can kind of see the dynamic between them. It's you can see they were all invested in it. They all believed in the script. You always get in a film, you see someone who's just kind of like throwing over the lines just because they're taking the paycheck. But this cast as a collective were just special. I will agree apart from Michael Sarah. Oh, okay. I was about to say anybody we didn't love, so take the floor, yeah. James. So this will be quite a biased view because I'm not the biggest fan of his. But certainly in this film, with someone like Player X, who's supposed to be, he he just wants to destroy people's worlds. I just don't think that actor really fit the character in general. I felt even though he was supposed to be this evil person who just wants to destroy everyone, he just felt a bit too soft and a bit too nice to do what he does for Player X. And I don't know who he's based on. Oh, I was about to ask, do you not know who he's based on? No, I've no idea. This might change my whole I think that's Tobey Maguire. Oh, it's a million percent Tobey Maguire. Yeah. Then it doesn't fit, I don't think, because actually Tobey Maguire has a reputation of being, it just, is my, from what I've heard, rumors, I don't want to spit it out there. Um, <laughs> don't want to put us in a lawsuit already in the For first, first episode. For a first episode, we're, um, we're walking along <laughs> a very thin line. If we don't come back, we know why. <laughs> okay, he's... The rumours are he's got a reputation for being not a very nice person. Or Michael Sarah, when he's playing the character, 
he came across as nice and then a bit evil, obviously, when you get to see the character with a one-on-one with Jessica Chastain. So I, I get what you're saying there. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I didn't like Michael Cera in this film. I think I, I get to, like, I think, does he represent what we as people know Toby Maguire to be based on his screen persona? Like, I think that piece of the casting makes a lot of sense. But you're right that, like, the the pivotal moment where he steals the game from her, I don't mm-hmm. know if it was as sinister as it could have been. Yeah. Do you think that was sinister, though? Oh, yeah, that was. Ooh. But this is where. You could play the math moment. on that, right? Um, dude, you don't want to mess with private games and running private games. It's so political. The stories I've heard from my poker friends about running games and, oh, you took that player from my game and how dare you take that player golfing and uh, all these things. Like, it's bonkers. We'll get to that more in a minute. Uh, thing we're going to ask consistently across these episodes is, is there anybody in this game that you would back? As a gambler, I think we all would back Molly because she knows how to run a quality poker game. Any players in this movie in particular, though, that you would be comfortable giving your money <laughs> and expecting a positive return on it? They're the person I've just said I didn't like. Yeah, 100% player X. <laughs> player X. He's all about the money. Yeah. I have all heard about that the Toby money. Maguire made was very successful when he played poker. All about the money. That's what you got to be, right? Cutthroat. Yeah, and if you if you're an actor and you're playing in a game, you are going to be able to play other people at the table like a fiddle. Well, here's the other thing about playing poker, playing cash games in particular, you cannot be cognizant of how much that money is worth. Uh, I'm kind of terrible when it comes to playing cash games because every time someone bets something, I'm like, you have wagered the gas bill. This gentleman has raised the utility bill, and this lady over here has just moved in for a car payment. And that is the fastest way to lose money, because you have to be willing to gamble a little. And I think the fact that Tobey Maguire had quite a successful career as an actor that provided a lot of money and just so happened to marry the daughter of a studio head, uh, the money didn't matter to him. And I think that's what makes him such a successful player. Mm Mm-hmm. Are we just outright confirming that this is Tobey Maguire now? Uh, listen. <laughs> we believe so. <laughs> legal disclaimer, you know, beats the podcast Cinema Reels, neither confirms nor denies. <laughs> I, uh, I will actually, you know what? <laughs> Might as well just legally light us on fire. Here's who everybody in the movie is rumored to be. <laughs> I I made a list. <laughs> Surprise, producer Molly. Might want to get a lawyer on retainer. Uh, <laughs> Dean Keith, who plays her boss, the one that Jeremy Strong plays, is supposed to be a business guy named Darren Feinstein. Uh, Harlan Eustace is the guy who missed his wife's birthday and lost all that money. Oh, yeah. uh, that is a person named Houston Curtis, who I have, I actually have met and have worked with and know. And in his version of this, he wrote a book about Molly's game. He all but confirms that it is her. And he says Toby's name in it for what oh. it's worth. So go sue Houston. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, Bad Brad is Brad Ruderman, uh, was the guy who was indicted for all of the Ponzi scheme stuff. 
And then they talk about a World Series of Poker main event winner. And they're like, oh, we can't invite him to the game. He won the main event. He has to be good. That Donnie Silverman character is allegedly based on the 2006 main event champion, Jamie Gold. So there was a scene on this guy. He said no lines whatsoever, but he was quite prominent in at least two or three shots back to back. It kind of resembled Eminem. I don't know if you remember him. So they were sat around the table. He had his hood up, a grey hoodie up, kind of dressed how Eminem would dress back in the day. And there was a little kind of screenshot of someone on stage. How I don't know. It's dressed. possible. So I would, I would probably suggest that was Nelly. Nelly. Nelly does play poker. Nelly or did rather. Nelly um, was apparently involved in the in the games as well. Okay. Leonardo DiCaprio played. Uh, ben Affleck used to play a lot before he went to rehab for, among other things, gambling addiction. Matt Damon and Edward mm-hmm. Norton played for a little bit. Um, there was this time, like, in the U.S. during the poker boom, there was a whole, like, celebrity poker showdown television show in which celebrities would play poker with one another, including there's one with the cast of The West Wing um, to bring things kind of full circle on that one. So one more person that's sort of rumoured to have been involved in this, and I genuinely think this is madness, is Macaulay Culkin. Really? I don't think that that's that random. Well, the reason I think this is madness is because he's a fantastic sort of 80s actor from like the Home Alone series and so on, but it is rumoured he's had issues in terms of a variety of different things, and I just can't see how he would still have that kind of cash. But I suppose you're getting wagered. I'm pretty sure I've recently heard him on a podcast say that he is he is loaded from the just the Home Alone films itself. Keep in mind, American laws uh, dating back to Jackie Coogan, they have to hold X percentage in a trust that he got uh, okay. in 18. Okay. So that's possible. Um. So the whole... The whole sort of FBI getting involved and everything like that, we're moving sort of down the story a bit. If the games in if the games in Los Angeles were legal, how are the games different in New York or was it Brooklyn or Because they she took a rake. It was perfectly it was legal just down to the rake. Is that they took those two chips off the table. That is the only thing about it that is illegal. Okay. And was that a regular occurrence? Does she talk about that in the book? I mean, um, you're saying I you... once you started raking the game, you kept raking the game. I think in the book she said she knew that she shouldn't take a rake, and then at some point she finally did take a rake. But that's protection, right? No. I mean, protection is that you don't extend lines of credit, mm-hmm. which she did in order to keep the games going. It is normal in private games to extend lines of credit. That's not necessarily unheard of. Uh, but you generally need someone to vouch for you. It's not like you can fully come off the street and just ask for half a million. You'll have someone who, and when you vouch for someone, you are obligated to pay if they don't pay. Um, To give guys, you know, part of this too is for us to discuss what they got right and wrong about the gambling. I will be honest, this movie truly crushes every other poker movie in terms of just getting it right. Uh, my friend of mine, actually, his name's David Paradis. He's a poker player out of New York that had played in Molly's game, worked with Aaron Sorkin on the two big hands that they used in the movie. So they did consult with a poker player to get realistic hands that would have happened at that table. Hold um, on. 
I didn't realize we had our own ringer on the t- in the podcast. Knowing people that were in the film or consulting on the film. John, Cheeky. perhaps I should tell you my background. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in the poker industry from 2008 uh, on and off my whole, since then, to be honest, I'm still fairly enmeshed in it. My friends are poker players. I know all of the regular poker players in the world. We've worked together and been acquainted. And yeah, so I know David from uh, covering him. Way back. Wee, wee, big. Uh, yeah, poker. It's the thing I know best. Um, and I can tell you both of these hands make a, mo- a lot of sense. I did love like the visuals that they used. Mm. They kind of took some of the graphics that you would see on like the World Series of Poker or World Poker Tour to kind of show you the hands play out. Those are, are relatively accurate. Um, the dealer, for example, when um, Harlan Eustace is going on like monkey tilt and is really upset after losing that hand... He says, he calls the dealer a bottom dealing party magician. Mm-hmm. What you're referring to with bottom dealing is cheating. It's a way of setting the deck so that a specific card, you're supposed to deal off the top of the deck. And uh, in real life, Houston Curtis is actually a very accomplished card mechanic, um, aka someone who can manipulate the deck and cheat. Uh, he said that in Molly's game, he did not do that. And there was only one instance in his book where he does mention actually manipulating a hand that he was playing in, in a different home game. Um, so, you know, that is, is accurate and up there, the chips and the fact that she was pointing out to, uh, the character that Joe Keery from Stranger Things plays that, you know, I know, like you may have made fake chips and pawned them into the table, but I have measures in place to know what are real chips and what are fake chips. Um, in a game of that size, you would have a custom deck. You would have things like RFID or other technology in place to ensure that people aren't palming chips into the game like he did. Uh, I, I really don't have many nitpicks on this one. Um, do you guys, James, John, do you have questions about the poker in this? Other, We've already established that what she was doing, largely legal, save for that little bit there at the end. Any other questions? No, not from my side of things. I mean, I pay poker for chilies. And what I mean by that is you lose a hand, you take a hot chili. That's how Oh, I, I thought we were going to a fast, casual Mexican-American restaurant. but No, no. You lose a hand, you take the hottest chili there is. Ooh, that sounds gross. It's not pleasant the next day, I'll tell you that for fun. Um, James, poker questions on your end? No, I think you kind of... You kind of already answered stuff that I already had questions about or corrected some statements that I made at the start to be factually more correct. There is one thing I do want to ask. I don't know if it's poker-related. It wouldn't be like poker-related, but it's more the, the lawsuit and that kind of side of it. What exactly were the U.S. government after a fall? Because that's something that still confuses me a little bit. Um, so I don't have this case like ironclad in my head exactly how it worked, but generally in cases like this, Molly is a cog lower down on the pyramid that you go to and push on the charges that you can get them on so that they roll and help the government build a case on somebody else. Okay. So originally Molly's name came up because of the Brad Ruderman lawsuit. 
Ponzi scheme stuff. And she was mentioned. And then because these Russian mobsters are now playing in the game, they're trying to get any information they can on those Russian mobsters. So they're going to get her on, you know, illegal gambling. Where if it was just her doing it by herself in a room with people that weren't in the mob, I don't think anybody would really care. And so that's why there's all these scenes in the movie where she's talking to the authorities and she's very particular mm -hmm. that she doesn't want to name names. Okay, that's kind of what I had in mind, but it was just a little unclear for me. There's a there's a big group of people that were charged in this as well. There were 33 other people, including Molly Bloom, that were charged within this, and she was well down the well down the sort of chain of charges. I mean, they were basically trying to get probably the Russian mob for money laundering, right? That's what they were mainly concerned about. Yeah, they were trying to get mobsters on like RICO charges, things like that. And then there was things like the racketeering and illegal sports betting and gambling on that side of things. I think in the end she got charged uh, for a misdemeanor that she kind of got away with with a year of probation, 200 hours of community service and a special assessment fee of 200 bucks we spoke about this earlier paperwork i get that but 200 bucks when she's just lost 125,000 in a forfeit and she's just being screwed over for a fine of 1.5 million or twice the amount she gained from the crimes or that's a lot that's a lot and i mean i i don't understand some u.s sort of legislation laws and so on the justice um, system man will get you for everything when i lived in nevada every year i had to pay like 35 bucks to go get my car smog checked as if like a car that was made long after these smog rules were in effect would suddenly become smog inefficient we'll nickel and dime you for anything that we can i yeah. do have one thing that this movie got wrong which is when darren or Dean, rather, fires her from his game and she takes the game from Dean, which, by the way, you know, like karma, because Toby took the game from her. Um, she said that she texted the new assistant several phone numbers with, and I quote, 310 area codes. I have never heard it called 310. If you have a 310 area code, which is a Beverly Hills area code, you have a 310 area code, not 310. Hmm. I thought it was quite impressive that she managed to steal that game and set up her own game in the space of a day in that film. Life comes at you fast, James. Do you know what movie that's from? <laughs> oh, I really should, Shana. I do. <sighs> Molly, cut that. I do know the film. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Ferris don't Bueller. cut that. Ferris Bueller. <laughs> that's a Ferris yeah. Bueller reference. If you don't stop and take a look once in a while, I might miss it. Yeah. All right. We tested James. We tested James's knowledge on uh, Ferris Bueller, but we're going to test both of your knowledge here in a second. We're going to take a quick break, come back, and guys, I made a little quiz for you. Ooh. Mm, interesting. All right, gents, I hope you're ready for the mental challenge that is the Cinema Reels quiz. That's right. Each week, I'm going to ask you guys five questions inspired by the movie that we watched, and the winner we'll get to call which side of the coin we flip to determine what movie we watch next. So, hi. High stakes and bragging rights. I feel like John's going to do quite well here. I feel like his general knowledge is pretty, pretty good. Yeah. We shall see. Yeah. All right. 
Molly Bloom was a moguls skier. Mogul skiing has been an Olympic event since 1992. Which country has won the most medals? And this is across men's and women's. A, Finland. B, the United States. C, Canada. Or D, France. Uh, you know what? Since we think John knows so much, I'm James. You can answer first. Okay. Glad to. Um, so in, before you even read out the questions, or, sorry, the answers, I had Canada in my head. So let's go Canada. All right. John, what do you think? France. But I actually had Austria in my head. The answer is my nation, the United States. Uh. Fail, guys, fail. Uh, yeah, the U.S. has 12 medals. Canada has eight. France has six. Norway and Russia have five. Austria has zero. Australia has four. <laughs> you laugh, but there is a big ski resort in Australia. Oh, is there? There is a big ski resort in Australia. I never knew that. All right. Uh, Aaron Sorkin who did not write the pilot of Suits, <laughs> has been nominated for four Oscars across the two screenplay categories. For which movie did he win? A, The Social Network. B, Moneyball. C, Molly's Game. D, The Trial of the Chicago 7. John, you can answer first this time. Social Network. Okay. James? Mm. So I was going to... I'm stuck either between Social Network or Moneyball. Uh, but I'm going to say Moneyball. The, ans <laughs> the answer is The Social Network. Yeah. So, James, or John, rather, you have one point to James's zero. All right. In the press, Molly Bloom received the nickname Poker Princess. And let's face it, in poker, nearly everyone has a nickname. Phil Hellmuth, who has won the most World Series of Poker bracelets at 17, is nicknamed what? A. Kid Poker. B. The Mouth. C. Hellraiser. Or D. Poker Brat. James. Oh, that was gobbledygook to me. I have no idea. Um, it's a gambling podcast, so we're the gambling experts, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'll go with the poker brat. It sounds, I don't know. It's got the word brat in it. We'll go with that one. Okay. John? I want to go with the mouth because I like the sound of that. The answer is poker brat. Yeah. There is a player nicknamed the mouth. His name is Mike Matisau. Mike the mouth Matisau. Kid poker is the nickname of Daniel Negreanu. And Hellraiser, I thought maybe with Hellmuth I could throw you off the scent, but <laughs> you all are too sharp for me. All right, moving Wasn't on, really we are listening. tied one to one. <laughs> Player X in Molly's game is said to be Tobey Maguire, the OG Spider-Man. Which of the Spider-Man movies made the least, least amount of money? Is it Spider-Man? Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, or Spider-Man No Way Home. We are not adjusting for inflation. We're not adjusting for inflation. We are not adjusting for inflation. Okay. John. This is kind of like James's specialist subject. Maybe not. 
Or maybe I'm hustling. I I kind of think three, but I also want to say No Way Home because it was after COVID, so maybe people aren't going to the cinema as much. But then it streams through Disney Plus, so do they get? Does that count? Does the revenue no. through Di- no commercial box office of people who went to the movies? Ah, uh, let's go three. Spider Man three. Yeah. Was right. No Way Home after COVID? Oh yeah, was well, sorry. Talk about talk to yourself. I'm not giving you that info. Um, so it's either going to be Spider Man One or Spider Man Three. Spider Man No Way Home was one of the biggest Marvel successes has been. Two was one of the best films. Two is definitely good. Uh, yes, yeah, was one of the best. I'm actually going to go Spider Man One because I feel like they might have been a bit more of hype than Spider Man Three, even though it was massively disappointing. So Spider Man One. Spider-Man 2 made the least really? amount of money. Of really? Yup. That's a good film. Yeah. Maybe people hated one so much that they didn't want to go and see two, and then when people got it out on VHS or DVD or whatever the brand was at that time, yeah. um, maybe, there are other technologies. Maybe we're filled with so much nostalgia, though. Mm. Fun fact, I went to see Spider-Man 2 with my family having not seen the first Spider-Man and I kept asking if it mattered and they told me it didn't and then I got in there mm. and I was completely lost the entire time. Yeah, it matters. You think? Yeah. Yeah, you build up all the characters, you build up all the relationships that what happened with William Defoe's character and his son and that comes back again. Yeah, I was like, too. why is James Franco seems like his friend? Why does he yeah. hate him? Yeah, they all interconnect. Oh, uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, by the way, like top 10 grossing movie yeah. of all time. Yeah. Oh, really? It was yeah. massive success. That's right. pretty That's pretty impressive post-COVID. Sweet. All right. We are tied at the moment, one to one. So here's what this fifth question is going to be. There are no multiple choices on this question, and we are going to do closest to the answer on either side. So no price is right rules going over, et cetera, et cetera. Closest on either side. There is the hand in the movie where Harlan Eustace flops a full house, queens full of sevens, and his opponent moves all in with ace-king for a pair of sevens, ace-high, and goes runner-runner to make a bigger full house. What was the percentage chance of that happening? Uh, Who goes first on this one? John, I believe? James. James does, you're right. Um... I'm sorry, you're going to have to repeat all that again. Oh my God, James. Okay, so you remember the guy, he has pocket queens and it comes out queen seven seven and he has a full house. Yep. Three queens, two sevens. This ring a bell. Kind of, yes. Okay, the other guy had an ace and a king to go along with a queen and two sevens. So he had just a pair of sevens and ace king high, right? And they get it all in on the flop. No more. Oh, it's on the flop. Okay. So the percentage from that point where the money went in that the guy with Ace King would win, because it then came King and another King for him to make a bigger full house. What was the percentage chance when the money went in on the flop that the guy who had Ace King was going to win the hand? I don't know. Um, I'm gonna guess. I'll just say. 40%. I don't know. 
All right. I want John to explain John. the flop, though. The flop is the first three cards that comes out. Oh, okay. The queen, the seven, and the seven is the flop. When did the when did the second ace come in? There was no ace. Oh no, it he's got king, sorry, king. sorry, sorry. He's yeah, he's king got king, turn, king, king full house, river. king sevens, right? Yep. Um. Fourteen percent. Our winner is John, but like. Y'all don't understand the probabilities. <laughs> uh, the likelihood of this happening was 0.71%. Yeah, See, I was, I'm was, i going by when I watch poker on the TV and they've got all these things that are flying up like there. I was just like, you never see something that low. Yeah, because normally people don't do something that boneheaded. Uh, yeah, true. Yeah, this is a case of what in poker we call having to go perfect, perfect, which means like you have to hit exactly one card on the turn and exactly one card on the river although in theory he could have also gone seven seven for quad sevens with an ace kicker so i guess he had a couple more back like runner runner kind of outs but yes 0.71 percent 40 percent i james you just must be tired uh, and ready to move on this really hasn't put me in the best of light <laughs> In terms of my po <laughs> my gambling knowledge, I'm the poker expert. Don't yeah. worry, we've got someone on staff for it. Okay, there's many more for you to win, James. Many more. I can't wait for the film where it's based on slots. That's what I'll say. All right, uh, John, are you ready to hear about what you've won? I'm intrigued. All right, John, what you've won is that we have a coin, and on one side of this coin is the British movie Croupier, and on the other side of this coin is the Netflix film Win It All. Oh. You're going to tell me which side or which film is going to be heads or tails, and then we're going to flip and tell you which movie we're watching next. Okay, because I want Croupier, I'm going to go heads. All right, let's see what we've got. Sorry, Brits. It is tails. We are going oh. mumblecore with Win It All, Jake Johnson, and the Netflix film that came out, uh, I think, right in the middle of the pandemic. So it's on Netflix for those of you that want to watch it in advance of us talking about it on the next episode. So be sure to check it out and keep tuning back in to Cinema Reels. Oh.